Welcome to Craft. Each month, we bring you one international writer talking about one of their works for about 30 minutes. This month, Nina Minya Powells talks about her food diary and travel memoir, Tiny Moons. Nina is a poet, writer, and maker from New Zealand, currently based in London. So this is actually from the very end of Tiny Moons. And um, unlike the rest of the book, it's kind of takes, it kind of takes place in New Zealand, uh, where I grew up and where I'm from. Um, Whereas the rest of the book is more of a Shanghai diary, but this is after that. When I chance upon a Chinese grocer's or any Asian supermarket anywhere in the world, I fall into a trance. I sway in front of aisles packed with a hundred different brands of instant noodles. I become giddy at the sight of all the snacks my mother loves. Dried plums in bright purple packets, rice crackers, dried peas, pungent vacuum-packed salted cuttlefish. I resist the urge to stroke the green gold papayas and mangoes. I head for the freezer section where the dumpling skins are stacked according to national variety. For Korean mandu, for Japanese gyoza, for Tibetan momos. In London's Chinatown in the middle of winter, I once bought a kumquat tree just because they were there and because my parents had a kumquat tree on the balcony in one of the many houses where I grew up. In her essay, Crying in H Mart, the American musician and writer Michelle Zorner, who's of Korean descent, describes her local Korean supermarket as a kind of sanctuary and magic portal. Sitting in a Korean food court in suburban Philadelphia, she wonders who else around her is missing home. What memory are they reliving? Where are they trying to reach? Who are they desperately trying not to forget? If she saw me, she might know. Where I live now, the nearest Asian supermarket is a bus and a train ride away. This means I must teach myself to make my own dough for the jiaozi pea, dumpling skins, something I always thought was beyond me, a skill reserved only for the most experienced Chinese aunties and grandmas. The first time I try, I'm cooking for one. There are only two ingredients, flour and water. I make a well in the flour with a spoon and add lukewarm water. Different recipes call for different temperatures. Cold water makes for a stiff dough, making it better for fried dumplings. Hot or just boiled water creates a softer, more malleable texture, better for sealing the gel to the edges tightly before boiling. The dough is soft and pliant. I pull the ball into two halves and then in half again. I roll them into cylinders and cut them into small gnocchi-like chunks before shaping the chunks into balls by rolling them between my palms. I press down with the heel of my palm to flatten each ball into a disc, leaving an imprint of my palm lines. The jiaozi shouldn't be perfectly flat. Unlike sheets of pasta rolled out to make ravioli, the circle of dough for jiaozi should be thicker in the centre 
and thinner around the edge. This means the center can hold the xia, the filling, without breaking, while the edges can be tightly sealed. I use the edge of a rolling pin to flatten the edge of the circle, rotating it with my other hand. It's the kind of swift movement that I never thought I'd be capable of, but now it comes easily to me, even though I'm uncoordinated when it comes to speed and rhythm. When cooking, my body falls into a natural rhythm I didn't know I had. I take a small spoonful of the chopped filling. I place it in the center of the circle, then seal it with two or three folds on each side so that the curved outer edge is molded round my fingers. Each homemade jiaozi looks like this, formed inside a cupped hand, pressed shut by firm fingers. Each dumpling holds the shape of my skin. It started as a blog and I'd never done any blogging before, but basically I, I moved to Shanghai after I had just finished my uh, creative writing masters and I did poetry. Uh, so I just finished a quite a full-on year of writing poetry and just finished a manuscript for a book. And then I, th- I kind of thought, okay, what, what should I do now? And applied for a scholarship to uh, study Chinese in China, which was something I had always wanted to do anyway. And I had studied Mandarin at uni as well. So it seemed like a good time and didn't know what else I was going to do. So I really just didn't think about it too much and, and just went for it. And But when I got there, it was really full immersion uh, language classes like Monday to Friday, most of the day was in language classes and it was very much uh, doing like memorization and grammar and these kind of like one side of my brain. And and I was, I was really missing reading and writing poetry, but I really couldn't get into it very easily. And, and also just being in a new environment and being quite homesick, it wasn't, I wasn't able to write, but I decided I would each month write a record of a favorite snack or favorite meal that I'd eaten in Shanghai. So it was partly to get myself writing again, also to keep track, because uh, I was discovering a lot of really amazing new, particularly like Shanghai street foods, and I wanted to keep a record. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how it happened. And it was called Dumpling Queen. <laughs> and it, I think I did it, I think I kept it up for like, six to eight months which for me is pretty good for for a new project um and each month I picked a dish or an ingredient so and the very first blog that I wrote actually is still the it's what ended up as the first chapter in the book as well and I don't think it it changed very much actually
the blog started um, uh, like five or six years ago and then it was only kind of a couple of years after that I was moved here to London and saw the Emma Press had a call out for prose pamphlets which I found really intriguing because it wasn't something I'd ever heard of before never seen a submission submission request for prose pamphlets and I was already really um taken with uh, poetry pamphlets and had published some of my own and was like actively trying to do more poetry pamphlet publishing um but yeah the possibility of a prose pamphlet suddenly seemed quite exciting because it was meant to be short and I cannot cannot write long things or just find that really really hard so the idea of a um a short work of prose and and I think they were open to both fiction and non-fiction um and so yeah I I I decided to compile a few of the pieces from the blog and I think also kind of submitted a rough table of contents kind of proposal and that's how that happened. When the blog first came out, it was being shared like by my mum on Facebook and like my mum's friends. I think that was my main <laughs> my main readership. Probably hasn't changed. Um so I think it was in a way speaking to people who were not in the same place I was and, and it it was originally kind of a way of keeping in touch with them and and letting them know, um, yeah, what I've been eating. There were some pieces that I think it was apparent they weren't really relevant and I was writing very short um, entries on the blog as well like I think each one might have been um, around 800 words which was, at that time for me was a really nice short length um, but I remember the the overall word count for this was it was going to have to be around 11 to 12,000 words and now you know that to me is is not it's not very long because now I've written a longer book, but um, yeah, that felt really impossible. And so actually it was a matter of filling in blanks and um, adding pieces or reshaping to make them a bit longer and, and I think making the pieces all a bit more consistent, uh, so similar lengths. So I think I did really lengthen everything. So it wasn't so much about cutting but um yeah making it bigger which I found really challenging and and always have I still do like writing long things but I, I guess maybe because I prefer poetry or read a lot of poetry and have short attention span um so it really helped me to break it down into parts and um it was from reading another memoir called Turning by Jessica J. Lee. 
that I came up with the idea of structuring it by the seasons, um, which she does in her memoir, which is about swimming over a year in Berlin, um, 52 lakes in a year. So each of the, each part of the book is a season. And um, yeah, apart from that being really beautiful and very um, kind of symmetrical, very balanced, uh, I felt it worked really well because the seasons very often were coming up in my writing about Shanghai, which has got really uh, loud and colourful, very clearly delineated seasons, which was a new experience because in New Zealand uh, we just, we don't have that. It's kind of just cold. <laughs> So when I was young, I um, never really learnt Mandarin or Cantonese or Hakka formally at all, but I did grow up with all the the soundscapes of those languages. So um, I'm interested more recently in my writing of exploring um, other types of fluency beyond just kind of conventional modes of of levels of fluency that we think of um so like memory and the body and how we how these languages are a, a part of us even if you know we may not necessarily speak and understand them mandarin though is one language that i have really for many years tried to properly um gain proficiency but there was always this feeling like fluency was just a tiny bit out of reach or like it might just slip away at any moment. Like if I, if I don't do my homework next week or something, it will slip away from me, which is now very ridiculous to think about, but it definitely felt that way. And, and now of course I'm not using it every day. I'm, I'm using it hardly ever. And so it's really has slipped away from you in a big way so um yeah just language learning in general for for me and I know it's very um quite a common thing but it's certainly wrapped up with um belonging belonging and identity and I, I think I definitely went to Shanghai thinking oh if I go and become fluent Mandarin I'll be more Chinese <laughs> and all I'll understand some core part of myself you know um and obviously I didn't yeah I don't know if I really believe that but there's certainly a hope that that might happen and um obviously turned out to be a really slow process and and very complicated and and all the people around me as well were mostly learning Mandarin for very different like career reasons or things like that. So it was also in some ways a bit isolating. My journey, I guess, with using Mandarin and Hakka and Cantonese in my writing is is kind of always changing and shifting. And this was a very early, this was an example of very early attempts at how can I 
very slowly in small ways um, bring in these languages which have always been a part of my world and just like very slowly realizing that I do want to intentionally in my writing decenter English as like the main language um, and decenter um, I guess Western ideas about Asia and Asian languages but I think at the time that's not something I was conscious of yet. Not giving translations and not uh, providing glosses of words is partly something I've slowly developed as I've gotten more confident as a writer and also very much a political choice. I think at first it was a a growing feeling that I didn't necessarily, you know, know how to articulate, but I think when I was living in Shanghai, I read... I was reading a lot of poetry online because I didn't have access to, you know, lots of bookshops where I could buy poetry in English. So lots of my interactions with the literary world was literally on Twitter. <laughs> and, um, and so it was, it was now, uh, thinking about it, quite a unique period because I was in, felt almost like I was in a bit of a vacuum um, in terms of not being at that time so much part of a New Zealand poetry community and also obviously I didn't yet have any connections with a UK literary scene. So I was reading most of the poetry online and I found some poems by Safia El Hilo, who's an American poet, and she uses bits of Arabic in her poems and writes really interestingly about um, heritage and childhood associations with language um, and does interesting things formally with making her poems into kind of dictionary definitions, borrowing that form, which I found really inspiring. And yeah, I think it's, it's been a really ongoing process and, and I'm always uh, I think I'm often finding new ways to use other languages in my both my poetry and in my prose and I remember that a couple of years ago I went to a poetry reading uh, organized by Jennifer Wong and it was amazing it was poets from Hong Kong and Mary Jean Chan was one of the the poets and I was already a big fan of hers but in the Q&A after the reading she spoke about deliberately not including a glossary in her poetry collection and you know not translating words for the reader and she said something about um yeah, deliberately kind of discarding the white gaze. 
And this was something I'd already felt in me, I think, but to hear her articulate it so clearly was really powerful. And I think from then on, yeah, there was no stopping me <laughs> in terms of sticking lots of um, Chinese into my work and and yeah, becoming less and less interested in in including translations and things. I'm not necessarily interested in like capturing someone who from the outset maybe is not interested in reading the work like with that openness and um, curiosity if they're unfamiliar with something I'm writing about. So that, yeah, that gave me, that's that's over the years really built up my confidence as well and really allowed me to not think so much about reader a reader at all when I'm writing, which I think is the the easiest way for me to to write. But then at the same time also to to think of a community of of poets and like my friends and maybe also family as my readers I find really helpful as well. And to to no longer worry about, you know, um alienating someone. Um, with these languages in my work because they're probably not my reader. This is a kind of travel diary as well as a food diary. Um, and I think it... Food is so deeply personal and so wrapped up in childhood memories for me and for lots of us that I think it was inevitably going to be quite a personal book with very much um, lots of myself in it. Obviously, I couldn't help writing about yeah my family and homesickness particularly because part of the reason I think that I found writing the blog really helpful was that at the time I was feeling very homesick and focusing on food and going out to eat was just was yeah literally was really helping me um stay afloat and and help you know enjoy my time in Shanghai rather than just missing New Zealand a lot quite a slow process and now I realize it was also very hands-off editing process compared to other um, publications I've done since and so I think I recall that really just via email um, it was Emma of the Emma Press and at the time also another editor Yin Yin was working at the Emma Press and they would give me a bit of guidance and particularly about structure. Um, but once I found the structure that I knew was right for the book, which was the seasons, um, I just kind of ran with that. And that was a really useful breakthrough. Um, and I really think that the editing was minimal. It preserves the the intensity and the 
the heightened emotions that I was feeling at that time and so that's okay but it it was it did get a lot more collaborative when it came to the um the production and design which happened much later I think um you know quite close to publication we were going back and forth about colors which you know which I so enjoy because colors are very important to me and fonts and things like that and so um Emma the director of the Emma Press she drew she did everything um she designed the cover painted the dumplings on the cover um they're so beautiful and I think she sent me a few different colorways but it, it always had I think floating dumplings on the cover which is really nice <laughs> and and then I also didn't know that she was planning on doing actual illustrations for the interior pages of the book um really until she like sent me a few mock-ups and I remember like I think she sent me um the very first one um is a really lovely drawing of some instant noodles and then there's some dumplings and um zongzi so dumplings wrapped in leaves and she sent me these and they were just so beautiful and so unexpected and I really I think I cried because I was so happy and they're so beautiful and she also understood that punctuation is really important to me and um typeface and font and so we it was quite a slow process um getting the right font for the Chinese characters which was really important to me and that's not something I've encountered um with any other publisher I've worked with um because sometimes with various software it's hard to get the Chinese characters to like to align with the rest of the text or something but she was really keen to work with me to find the the right font for those and also she found a really really cool um I'm not sure what a word for it might be but basically the paragraph separator symbol and she put little tiny moons in it which was lovely and, and it's not something I I put in, so that was really amazing as well. Some parts I find I will never really read them, you know, like at an event or something. I, I some parts really make me cringe, and that's okay. I think. Um, lots of us maybe have that relationship with older things we've written and there's definitely some chapters I can sense that it was a really lonely time and quite painful time and you know so I don't there are parts I don't look look back and read again but that said I wouldn't you know want to take them out or anything because I think it's just that this is a, a book that captures a really intense and particular time of my life so and that's okay and it just I think recognizing that just kind of shows ways maybe I've grown as a writer which is quite nice Craft is brought to you by Wasafrian Magazine and Queen Mary University of London with funding from Arts Council England. Our theme music is by Josh Winneberg. Our logo is by Ala Al-Saraji. Tom Wilson does our editing. 
Peter Falconer does our sound design. Interviews and the introduction are by me, Malachi McIntosh, and Afsana Nishat does everything else. See you next month.